0: I don't know if you can resonate with this, but we live in some very tense times. Um, Probably no point of tension rivals the point of tension that happens when you get political. You know what it is, we're into democracy, democracy, and we're a republic. Someone said, you know, you're actually not a democracy. You're really a constitutional republic, which means that you get people to represent your interests. The problem with that is we fight about who should represent our interests because our interests are not the same. But what we do know is we want to be in charge. We want to choose our leaders And we want to boot our leaders when they don't do what we want them to do. It's of the people, by the people, for the people is what we say. And therefore, since we're into democracy, we're really not into monarchy. Monarchy is where there is one person who decides everything. They don't have to ask anyone. They do what they want to do. They do it when they want to do it. They do it how they want to do it. It's called a king. It's called a sovereign. Somebody who does what they want, the way they want for the reasons they want. We're not good at monarchies. We're only good at democracies. And this makes it difficult to be a Christian because the Christian life is not lived as a democracy. It's lived under the reign of a monarch, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king. He does what he wants. He does it how he wants. He does it When he wants for the purposes that he wants. And again, we give him pushback sometimes because we're like, I don't like what you're doing. And I'm used to being able to kind of like take issue with the person that's in charge. I'm used to being able to usher them in. And if they don't act right, usher them out. I'm used to being able to push back. Our text today is all about a king who brings people in and he says, instead of you judging me, I'm going to judge you. Instead of you doing what you want to do, I'm going to hold you accountable for doing what I want to do. Luke chapter 19. It was read for you. It's called the parable of the ten miners. We'll explain it. But if you have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. But if you have a Bible, make sure you turn there because there's a lot of good stuff here. The king is not a president. And I think about what does it mean for you to live as though Jesus is king and not president? It means for you to understand that Jesus doesn't walk with you, but Jesus bids you to walk with him. I've said this before, that there's a stark difference between Kanye West of Jesus Walks and Kanye West of Jesus is king. Even if it's all a fraud, I don't know. Again, I saw the Netflix. I'm like, I don't know what to think anymore. But let me just tell you. All you have to do is look at what he put forward before us, and you do see a difference. When Jesus walks, it was Jesus walking with you while you do your thing, your hustle. You remember what he said. We ain't going nowhere, but we got suitcase, suits and cases, a trunk full of coat, rental car from Avis. My mama used to say only Jesus can save us. Well, mama, I know I act the fool. I'll be back till November. I'll be going to November. I got packs to move. Jesus walks. <laughs> It was basically a Jesus walking with him while he was doing this thing. Later on, he says, to the hustlers, killers, murderers, drug dealers, even strippers, Jesus walks with them. No sense that he's walking with them to call them to himself, just the kind of he walks with them. Again, Jesus walks. But then later on, when he said Jesus is king, you notice a difference in the whole catalog. The first song is every hour. Every minute, every hour, every second, each and every millisecond, down to the final. I need you because it's about you, not about me. The very next song, Selah, God is king, we the soldiers, ultra beam out the solar. When I get to heaven's gates, I ain't got to peek over all this swag. But it was about God being king and about him being soldier. Follow God. Life-like. This is what your life's like. Try to be Christ-like. It was about being like Christ, not about him. The fourth song closed on Sunday. You my Chick-fil-A, right? You my number one with the lemonade. And he even goes on to say, hold the selfies. It's not about me. Put the gram away. Get your family. Y'all hold hands and pray. Got down. Follow Jesus. Listen and obey. No more living for the culture. We're no longer slaves. All I'm saying is these are two different ways to address Jesus. One, Jesus is with you as you hustle. The other one is with Jesus being the hustle. Pastor Dehadi often reminds me, put away your side hustles. He says there's only one worthy to be hustled for. And today what I want to do is talk about no more side hustles out of this passage. The parable of the ten miners First, the context of the parable. The context of the parable. Jesus is a type with parables that often tell you why he's giving you the parable. And look what the context says. First of all, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He tells you why he told them. What is the these things? You have to go back to verse 10. It says, for the son of man came to seek and to save that, what was, that which was lost. So in other words, when they heard that Jesus was saving people like Zacchaeus, which is that's when he says it. That's the story of Zacchaeus. They were wondering, wait, what's going on with this king that's saving people like Zacchaeus and not doing what we want him to do? In other words, Jesus says, you're expecting a king. As I get to Jerusalem, you want me to bring in the kingdom, and you think the kingdom is going to show up like 17 miles from here. He's in Jericho. It's about 17 miles away from Jerusalem. So he's like, okay, as soon as we get to Jericho, you think that the kingdom of God is going to be there in its fullness. In other words, they wanted Jesus to usher in their political hopes. chapter 9.51 is where he starts the Jerusalem. At the end of this this parable right here, he arrives at Jerusalem. In other words, he's on his way to the cross. He's not on his way to sit on a throne and have his crown. The only crown Jesus is about to wear is a crown of thorns. That's not the Jesus they were bargaining for. In chapter 18, before this 19, he heals blind Bartimaeus, a blind man on the road who was blind in the physical, but he had eyes better than everybody else because he said, son of David. It says Jesus of Nazareth was called son of David. What would make a blind guy on the side of a road hear that Jesus of Nazareth is in the building and call him son of Israel's greatest king? It's because blind Bartimaeus is the one who gives us this idea that I know who you really are. (laughs) You're not president, Jesus, (laughs) you're king. (laughs) Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus said, Oh, your faith has made you well, gave him his sight. So the messianic fervor is in the air. There's messianic buzz in the air when we get to our parable. They want Jesus to come in and be king. Right after this is going to be what they call the triumphal entry. You know what you've heard of the triumphal entry. That's where Jesus is put on a, a colt and he rides through and they say, Hosanna, blessed be the son of David. Right? It says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, people thought Jesus was a the king. They thought he was about to be kingly. Of course, dying in their eyes was not kingly. Saving a Zacchaeus was not kingly. They wanted a political king. So in the climax, he says, let me just tell you, I'm doing what Messiah does. I'm doing what King Jesus does. I redeem. I save. I deliver. And what they thought was, okay, but you're not political enough. You're focusing on redemption. We're thinking about ruling. You're trying to dethrone sin. We want you to dethrone Caesar. Caesar. You're putting together lost lives. We're looking for you to restore the lost identity and sovereignty of Israel. It's relevant for us today, isn't it? We want a Jesus, but only insofar as he's doing what we want him to do, often immediately and temporally in this life right now. I think this is the sin of Christian nationalism as it's called Jesus is on my side, and he's good, and we're for him because he's for us and our tribe and our political ambitions. I think it's also the sin of some liberal theology, some liberation theology, which says, I only want theology if it's going to change my social and economic status right now on this earth. Jesus is insufficient if all he's going to do is give me a heaven I have to wait for. I want him to change my earth right now. And so what do we do? We ask our president, are you going to do what I want you to do? Because I'll be disappointed if you don't. And guess what? The prosperity theologians have it right. By his stripes you are healed. And yet right now me and my family are praying for an aunt. That God would be with her. Whether he restores her in this life or takes her and heals her ultimately when she gets home you're right the kingdom is coming the prosperity theologians are right we shouldn't be bankrupt the bible says for our sakes he became poor so that we could become rich and if you look at revelation when the kingdom ultimately climaxes there will be no need there will be no issues there will be no lack they're right there should be no hunger the Lord Jesus is able to feed 5,000 with a bag lunch. Why is, are some of us hungry? <laughs> and that's because the kingdom is already, <laughs> but the kingdom is also not yet. The kingdom is coming. Sickness and poverty will cease. Death and destruction will end. The old folks used to say, we'll study war no more. There will be no Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia. There won't be any Israel and Palestine going back and forth and shooting bombs. And you're right, it's coming. Jesus tells this parable because he says, but what you don't recognize is you don't know how to deal with the delay. I am a coronated king, but you're living in between my coronation and the kingdom's consummation. Consummation just is a big word that means when it comes in its full. So let's read the text, the context. Kingship is in the air. Jesus tells them, You don't know about the delay. Now let me help you to deal with the delay of the coronation of me and the consummation of my kingdom. Verse 12. So he tells them this parable A nobleman went into a far off country. To receive for himself a kingdom and then return. You see that? There's the proof of a delay. There is someone who's going to get the kingdom and then he's going to return and when he comes back, that's when we'll see him bring in the fullness. In between, I'm a coronated king, the consummated kingdom. Jesus was a master storyteller. He was always contextual and one of the stories he used was a story they were well known, uh, they were familiar with. It was a story about how Israel was under Rome. If you were under Rome, you couldn't put up your own king. Rome had to give you the authority to have somebody that you wanted over you to be over you. Now, that person would be under Caesar, under Rome, but they could be over you. So there were no under kings unless Rome gave them the right to rule as an under king. History tells us that Herod the Great, you know Herod, the one that was there when Jesus was born, the one that killed all the little kids because he was trying to get rid of Jesus who would be born. Herod, he's called the king of the Jew, of, of Judea, the king of Judea. That's because he went to Caesar, Caesar agreed you could be king, and therefore Herod is called king of Judea. When he died, he wanted his son to have the same kind of privilege. So his son, Archelaus, said, all right, I want to go, and I'm going to take a trip, and I'm going to get the right to be able to be called king. The only problem was he was ratchet. He was so cruel. He was not a good leader, and so people hated him, and so they sent the delegation to say, we don't want him to rule over us. By the time he got there, even his own family said, we don't want him to rule over us. Well... Caesar said, well, i tell you what, you can rule, but you can't have the title king until you prove your worth. Needless to say, that never happened. He was so bad that after 10 years, they stripped him and they put a governor in his place who ruled for 30 years. Here's the point. The background was swirling in the air that there are rulers who try to rule that aren't wanted by those who would be ruled. So the Lord Jesus says, you know how there was a person who went away looking for that kingdom and they were going to come back as the king? Well, that's where we are right now. Perfect backdrop. A nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, then return. Jesus is the nobleman in this parable. He's the one who has the right to rule by birth. Birthright, they call it. That Jesus was born son of David. He is the one. When he ascended, when he, Jesus died, Jesus buried, was buried, and he ascended. The Bible says he sat at the right hand. To sit at the right hand was a way of saying the kingdom is mine. I'm coronated. If you go back to Psalm chapter 2, I know this may seem a little heavy because it's so hot, but you need this backdrop to appreciate this. Oh, snap. To appreciate this. Jesus says, I'm the nobleman, and I am going to the cross. I'm going to be buried, I'm going to resurrect, and I'm going to ascend, and I'm going to sit on the throne. That will be my coronation. See if you remember this for you who know the Bible. Psalm chapter 2. The Lord said to my, again, the Messiah, today you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's what they used to tell any king when they took the throne. They would say, you're my son, today you're the king of mine that was a way of coronating a king David got that right David went God said today you're my son David told him God told David when you have Solomon he will be my son Jesus is the ultimate son which means that when he arose he became the king the coronated king the only problem is he's got to return that's where we are right now he's got to return Daniel chapter 7, just read it when you go home. The Bible says this, to him was given, Jesus, glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus went to claim. And when he comes back, he's going to demonstrate this already happened. Philippians chapter two, read it when you go home. The Bible says because Jesus was so humble, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow before the king and every tongue would confess that he is king. So this is what already happened. Jesus now is telling them, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. It's not gonna look like I'm a king. It's gonna look like I'm on a cross. I'm gonna be on a cross. It's gonna look like I'm in a tomb. I'm gonna be in the tomb. But what you don't know is I'm gonna get up. And when I get up, I'm gonna go up. And when I go up, that's the coronation. And you will live between the coronation of my kingship and the consummation of my kingdom. You're gonna have to live between the dash. Perhaps you've heard that you have to live your life with the dash. The beginning your birth date dash death date and somebody will say you live between the dash right well you know for Christians there's a different dash our lives are not just me being born and me dying and whatever I do in between I do in between it's another dash the fact that he ascended and the fact that he's returning the fact that he came and the fact he's coming back that's the dash we're living for now we're living differently We're living between the coronated king and the consummated kingdom. Now, having been saved by the king, we delight in serving the king. Verse 13 says, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, minas, I've heard both, and said to them, engage in business till I come. So he calls in 10 servants, which is representative of calling people who accept him as their king. And he gives them something. One minor was called basically equivalent to a three months wages. So he gives them some cash. He says, I want you to do something with this money in such a way that you know what I'm looking for. You know what I want. And I want you to do something with it so that when I come back, you show me what you do with what I gave you. Now, if you know your New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, 24 and 25 is all about Jesus going back. And he gives out what we call talents. Talents was a different amount of money. If you go back and you read it, it's different amounts. Somebody gets this amount. Somebody gets that amount. Somebody gets a lot. Somebody gets a little. Because it's about how God distributes different things based on different callings and different capabilities. That's that parable. This is a different parable. Everybody gets the exact same thing. In this parable, there's an equal something given to all his servants. And what does that mean? That means that this is something that all believers can put to work. They all get the same thing. What is that? Well, one, it could be the gospel trust. Every believer is saved by the gospel and then sent with the gospel. Every one of us who are saved by the gospel gets sent for the gospel. You're out there. You can work the gospel you have. Your gospel is not different than my gospel. Your gospel is not more than my gospel. Your gospel is not less than my gospel. One preacher said, you can preach the gospel better than me, but you can't preach a better gospel than me. You know why? Because it's the gospel. Either you have the gospel or you don't have the gospel. He says, you send out, I'm sending you out with the spirit. Everybody gets a full dosing of the spirit. If you were to come to Christ, he would give you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he gives to all of us. Now, he gives us different ways to express the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, but he gives us all the same Holy Spirit. So this is a parable about God giving you the gospel trust and the power of the Spirit to go out and serve the king. So now, engage in business till I come. Put it to work. Do something. Do something. Live your life with this power. Live your life with my purpose in light of the fact I'm redeeming and in light of the fact I'm returning. How do you see yourself? How do you all see yourselves? Are you the servant of the king who came and who's coming back? Are you thinking every day, how does this fit into his purposes? The Bible says that when you get married, the Bible says God says, well, I'm after godly seed. Is that the why you get married? <laughs> That's what the Bible says in Malachi. I hate divorce because I'm after godly seed. The Bible says earlier in Luke's gospel, it says, put unrighteous money to use so that you'll have eternal friends or friends that welcome you in eternity. I know you're making dough. Do you use your dough so that somebody will meet you in heaven and say, yo, you're the reason why I'm here. <laughs> He says, do you understand my purposes? Jesus went to a mountain. Mountains were where he gave, like, stuff you got to pay attention to. He says, he went to the mountain, and he said, all authority is mine, kingship. And then he said, now go into all the nations and make disciples. Baptize them into the name of the triune God. Teach them to observe. Are you helping people to get baptized into the triune God and then helping them to be taught all, to observe all that he commanded? He said, and lo, I'm with you. I'm with you all. The promise, I'm with you. He said, wait for the spirit of God, the power, because I'm with you. And make disciples, the purpose for why I'm with you. All of this. Ten minus, which is three months wages to do something with. Take that life he's given you. If you're a doctor, doctor in such a way that it models the kingdom ethic of health. Lawyers, go out and law the way people who are into kingdom justice. Teachers, teach as though you had the very words of God and you were imitating the rabbi of rabbis. If you're, if you're a trade, if you have a trade, if you, if you do plumber, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever you do, do it in such a way that people will meet the light of the world. That they get the bread of life, butcher, baker, yeah, and that they have the meat of the word, just butcher, baker, candlestick maker. We work in this thing. If you're a parent, he's after the godly seed. If you're a child, he says, honor your parents because you all are part of a kingdom ethic that's showing to the world. The gospel is the announcement of the king. And a gospel-centered person who goes out and puts it to work is the person who lives every day in light of what the King wants to see happen in the earth. Jesus taught us to pray, "Thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven." We are what we call kingdom commercials until there's the kingdom consummation. Are you a commercial, or are you committed to your own side hustle? Are you autonomous? He brings them out. He gives them everyone this. Look what the text says, verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That goes back to Archelaus, which is a kind of an example that Jesus is probably leveraging. He says, but there's always somebody who doesn't want this leader. There's always somebody who wishes that this leader is a president that they can boot out. That this leader is somebody that they can sort of like scoot out. John 15, the Lord Jesus told his brothers, He says, his disciples, he says, you know, the Bible is true. They hated me without a cause. I fed, they hated me. I loved, they hated me. I restored, they hated me. I would see people who I don't even know. I would go down to the pool and say, you want to get up? I know you haven't gotten up in like 38 years. I got you i go to somebody who was born blind. I'd be like, yo, <laughs> I mean, I know you haven't seen, but yo. <laughs> I mean, I'm, we're talking about a God who says, they hated me without a cause. John 19, after it was clear that Jesus wasn't going to be what they wanted, when he was on the cross, Pilate said, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. <laughs> This parable was forecasting when the chief priests, the leaders, and the people would chime in, crucify him, away with him. We don't want this king. We have a king. Our king is Caesar. Are you the servants who live your life in light of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do and what Jesus will come back to establish? Or are you autonomous? Do you just do your thing? Are you like, ah, I don't use the words I hate them, but I mean, actually, like, I kind of, I'm good. I'm not into the God stuff. Are you a free agent? Are you doing freelance Christianity? We're in a day and age where people are saying, well, I don't like the institutional church. And I don't like organized religion. And I'm just a spiritual person. All of it amounts to a person who's just doing their own thing on their own terms, in their own times, their own way. Side hustles. Well, the Bible makes clear that at the king's return, there will be a time of review and there will be a time of reward. Look at the text. First, the reward for faithfulness. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. That he might know what they had gained by doing business. What have you done for me?" is what the Lord says. I know every day you hustle and hustle and hustling. The question is, how did the hustle play into what I was doing? I know you built the brand, people are checking for you. I know you built the business. people are logging in. I know you got the supply, and I know you give the demand) <laughs> The question is, what did you do with what I gave you that plays back into me? What about a kingdom hustle? Because I reward well. Verse 16, the first came before him and said, Lord, your miner has made 10 miners more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second one came, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, Are you and you are to be over five cities? First of all, note the humility. The servants come in to their king and they say, Your miner made more miners. It wasn't my talent, was it because I'm cute, <laughs> was it because my spill is so tight, <laughs> was it because I was so strategic. <laughs> Even though God uses strategy, God uses cuteness, God uses talent, at the end of the day, that's not what you're to boast in. It's your miners that made the miners. He says, your miners. He says, and now I got a thousandfold more than what you gave me because your miner is so tight. The parable of the sower. It's not about the sower. The sower just slings seed. The Bible says that the parable is about the seed because the seed, if it's in the right soil, does the work. Here it's not about your talents. It's about the miner. It's about the king who gives you the power. The king who gives you the strategy. The king who gives you the wisdom and the technique. It's about him. Your miners made minors. And the second was I got 500% more. He said, okay, that's good. He says, you're going to be over five cities. You're going to be over 10 cities. So note the humility. But also note the disproportionate reward he gave him three months wages he said go to work on with three months wages now you're over 10 cities (laughs) you went from having three months wages to the salary of 10 mayors you went from just somebody out there called the servant to somebody who's out there called a ruler the bible says when we come back we will rule with him It's a picture of whatever your state is down here. You ain't seen nothing till you see when he exalts you based on present faithfulness. Note the reward for faithfulness. It's disproportionate. He's lavish with giving. The preachers say you can't beat God giving. The gospel advanced because of this person. Your miners made 10 more because your minor is the trick. Your power is the trick. Your purposes are the trick. I like what Martin Luther, the reformer, says about this. He says, he gives you an example of this concept. I opposed indulgences. That's, you know, that Roman Catholic thing where they used to, like, pay in order to, like, get out of, you know, hell. He's I opposed the indulgences and all the popes, the concept of the pope. He says, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy. That's, again, the whole situation with the pope, that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. We're talking about a man who spent his life, again, and I know that we all got sin. We all got errors, all sinners. So I don't want to hear about, well, he was a sinner and he was a this and he was a that. Yeah, everybody who goes out with their minors goes out as sinners, dependent on the sovereign, saving work of the Lord Jesus. He said, and I went out there and I took my minors and I put it to work. And I opposed popes and I opposed indulgences and I opposed anti-gospel sentiments. And the word did it all. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who did oppose slavery, didn't even come to the States because he knew they would kill him and he knew that they were against his opposition to slavery in America. But this Baptist minister one time was talking about the power of God's word by the power of God's spirit. He says, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do, yet I always notice that there are most books of that kind It is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way to defend him, for he would take care of himself. The best defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. There it is again, that the gospel itself is powerful enough to do the work. If you would just commit your life to the one thing he's given us by his spirit, based on his promises, using his power, take his gospel, it will do the work. Your miners made more miners. Your power made sons of God. Your. Well. Well. Note his response to faith fruitlessness. I'm almost finished. Then another came, verse 20, saying, Lord, here's your minor, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. There's a Greek word here, a heteros, right? From which where we get the word, like heterosexual, like a different sex, right? A different kind of person shows up. Another kind of servant a different kind of servant he had a different value system he says lord i took the mina and i put it in a handkerchief he says not like it was valuable or anything i put it in a handkerchief a different perspective of the king he says and i know how you are you know i mean you drive a hard bargain it's not that you're loving you're severe he says you're a severe man not that you're a giver He says, you like to take where you didn't sow. He says, you like to reap what you didn't sow. In other words, you're not gracious. You're not a giver. It wasn't my joy to go out there and put your work together, your your money to work for your sake and for your purposes. He says, and then I knew on judgment day that if I messed up, there would be hell to pay. He says, and I knew I was afraid what was going to happen when you bring me in if I messed up? So I didn't, like, mess up your money. I just didn't do anything with it. In the meantime, I did my thing. Note his response. I will condemn you with your own words, verse 22, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Oh, cool, so you know me like that, right? <laughs> You know me. You know I want something. You know I want something out of the deal. Why then did you not put money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Why you didn't just find a way to use what I gave you to have some sort of benefit beyond yourself. If you knew me, you should have known. This is a picture of people who are in church. Because, again, it's part of the servants. He says these are the people who are around it all but don't seem to use it all. Who take it all in but they don't seem to give it all out. Who receive the benefits of what the king provides but don't seem to think that they should get rid of their side hustles. And commit themselves to his. 2 Corinthians 5.9, look at it when you go home. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 3, look what it says. No one can lay a foundation other than Christ. Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the capital day. We'll disclose it. There's a day when he'll evaluate what you did with what he gave you. And look what it says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is a picture of the believer whose works go up in smoke because they had nothing to do with Jesus. They had everything to do with us. Though we are saved, our works get no reward. I don't have time to belabor this point. But it would be terrible to realize that when we see all of that was wood, hay, and stubble. Every moment on the stage, wood, hay, and stubble. All of that talking to people, shirts pressed up with religious cliches, all manner of religious activity. And he'd show you, that wasn't about me, that was about you. Woof. Good things. Just not God things. And so what does he say? He says, take his and give it to the one who has 10. Look at the human response to the gospel. Verse 25. They said to him, Lord, he has 10 minors. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God gives you more than you deserve. And the human response is, but God, you already got. (laughs) He says, yeah. That's gospel. Here's the conclusion of the parable. There is no good news about a good king without realizing that those who don't want his kingship, they also still have to stand before him because he owns it all. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I'm closing. The other day, somebody posted a picture, some Hebrew Israelites on the corner. And there's one thing that they don't shrink back on. And that is talking about Messiah as a conquering king, not merely a forgiving one. And he said, he's angry. He's a big, black, angry man ready to stomp on your head so your brains pop out. And I cringed because I said, it's sad that you're saying this because there's an element of truth that the Bible predicts him as stomping through the wine press and getting his white robes red with the blood of his enemies. It's just a graphic way to say that If you won't have him as your king, you will have him as your judge. And just like it's only his minor that creates minors, it's only what he gives that produces what he receives. If you reject what he gives, you will have nothing to stand before him with except what you have, your own righteousness. So as we bow our heads and close our eyes... I hate that it ends on such a downer, but it's, that was verse 27, and that's the text. <laughs> and the text reminds us that we want this king. In fact, let us rejoice as the music earlier today, this morning, was reminding us about the way maker. That's the king. The miracle worker. That's the king. The light and the darkness, that's the king. And he can be your king. And if he is your king, rejoice in him. Rejoice in your king. Because he has a kingdom, he has the right to rule, and he is guaranteed a return. And when he comes back, there will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. There will be no shedding of tears. There will be no division. We will study war no more. I'm just talking about your king, that's all. And today, if he's not your king and you feel the pinch of his, me as my king or him as my king, I just want to tell you the Bible says that you can throw yourself at his feet. He's merciful. Which is why from here he's going straight to the cross for people who didn't ask for it and people who don't deserve it. And if today you want what he does on the cross to count for you, the Bible says just turn from your sin. Tell the Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. Tell the Lord Jesus, I recognize that you paid for sin and you save sinners, even bad ones like me and like the preacher up there. And then you want his forgiveness and you want to come up under his reign. He's a good father. He's a good ruler. He's a good lord. He's a good king. Father, would you do it for your name's sake? This is a rich text, but we feel it because it's all about the soberness of accountability and the glory of victory. Ours is the victory because yours is the victory. Would you help us to get rid of our side hustles and to give ourselves to the kingdom hustle, laboring night and day with your interests, your purpose, your redemption, and your return in view. Do it, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.